All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. Okay, welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry, CW2 type helicopter pilot in Vietnam in 1969. Welcome to Veterans Radio. As I said before, we're really excited because today we are honoring women. This is Women's Month, and we are honoring them right here on Veterans Radio. We've got two guests with us, Sherry Rood and uh Colonel Christine Cook, and we are going to be talking about some upcoming events here in the local uh, Southeast Michigan area for women veterans. And then we're going to be talking later on with Christine about uh, a little bit of the history of women in the military, because uh, she just recently received her PhD and her uh, dissertation was on women in the military. So I figured I'd go and get the experts. And uh, so we're excited to have them. If you want to get in on the conversation, you can give us a call here on Veterans Radio. The number is 734-822-1600, 734-822-1600. So all of you women veterans out there, if you want to get in on the conversation, feel free to give us a call. Um, before we get into this, I need to thank our sponsors because, as many of you know, Veterans Radio is a production of Veterans Radio America. Uh, Veterans Radio America is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so you can support us with your donations. And, of course, we would be greatly appreciative if you could do that. All you got to do is go to veteransradio.net and click on the donate button. So if you like what we're doing, you can support us. Thanks very much for your continued support. We do have a couple of corporate sponsors that I'd have to recognize. Number one is Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans specializes in veteran disability claims. So give Legal Help for Veterans a call at 800-693-4800. The National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, is the nation's leading third-party authority for the certification of veteran-owned businesses. For more information, you can go to their website, that's nvbdc.org, or you can give them a call at 888-237-8433. NVBDC uh, certifies you as a veteran-owned business. If you want to do business with the federal government and many corporations and you are veteran-owned, you need to get certified. And um, it's kind of a long process, but these folks can help you get through it every step of the way. So check them out, nvbd.org. Uh, the Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. For more information, you can go to the va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. We also want to thank our local veteran service organizations for their continued support over the last 20 years. This is the uh, Irwin Press Corps and American Legion Post 46 and the Charles S. Kettles Vietnam Veterans of America, Chapter 310, both here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And again, if you want to support us, go to veteransradio.net, click on the donate button. We'd be happy obviously, to receive your donation. Um, right now, I want to get into the program, and I want to introduce our first guest, and her name is Shelly Rude. And Shelly is a, uh, actually, she was a captain in the United States Army Reserves. She uh, graduated from Western Michigan. She, she's a crack shot. She was on the uh, rifle team out there, and now she's very, very active in uh, Women's Veterans and Women's Veterans Affairs. And uh, she's been on our program before. Uh, can't remember exactly when. I'll have to ask her about that. And uh, so anyway, Shelly, welcome back. Mr. Dale, it's such an honor to be here. Thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, this was um, 
others over self. That's what we talked about uh, a couple of years ago, not that long ago, really. But you now are involved in, as you mentioned earlier on while we were talking before we came on the air, more and more it's becoming more of your, um, I don't know, it just kind of takes over your life now. It can. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we've been in business as an educational consulting company since 2017. And in 2019, I was approached by um, a gentleman from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Chaplain Brian Webb. And he said, Shelly, I have this women's program that we really want to do. And I need a female military female to make it happen. Will you do it? And I said, absolutely. Um, and so it's grown from 2019 all the way until now. Next year, we'll be celebrating five years. Um, and that program is peer support. That's as simple as it comes. We provide peer support for Michigan's military women, um, both currently serving and past serving. So if you are a female that has ever served in the military, everything that we do is offered free of charge to you. We're just really here to love on the women um, and help them be the best versions of civilians that they can be. Well, I also need to point out that you are uh, a ordained minister you're you are the chaplain for a lot of different organizations and and that's how you got another way that you got involved in fact you're still involved with that aren't you it is so you know as a young business owner myself been still um reaching for what's next and outside of the military i have a love for continued professional development and something that i was really focused on was becoming a chaplain in the military actually uh, towards the end of my intelligence career, I wanted to branch transfer and be a military chaplain. And sadly, that is a dream that did not come to fruition. I received um, just time and grade discharge orders, and they said, just go ahead and re-enlist as a chaplain right in. Uh, well, wouldn't you know, I don't medically qualify to re-enlist in any of the United States military service. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I found myself as a civilian I completed my education. I became an ordained minister. I'm a chaplain and the military is saying, no, thank you. So I've really had to do a gut check over the last year and, and think to myself, well, what does that look like? And so it really has been a joy to bring that aspect of my life into everything that we do. Well, I, I have, I've seen you in action and you, you know, you do a great job, not only with all of your organizations that are helping women veterans, but also I think you, you help them spiritually as well. You know, especially, you know, some of these women that are making this transition from the military, um, you know, to the to civilian life. And it's a whole different I think it's a sounds to me like a whole different ball game than men transitioning and women transitioning. I don't know that personally, I don't know that I ever will transition. I think that my service time, you know, is 16 years across a 16 year span and it mostly was reserve. And so it's a part of my life. It always has been. I've always worn multiple hats and, you know, I've been groomed and trained and operating that way for the majority of my adult life. I don't know how to do just one thing. And the communication style, the way that we make friends, the way that we delegate amongst our teammates, we do things in a very unique way. And so one of the modules actually that we teach for our company is military cultural competency uh, and it's a good lesson for civilians and military people to go through to gain a better understanding of we are different from people who have never served in the military. And that's not a bad thing, uh, but it is something that should be recognized. And yes, specifically for the women, um, I do believe that sometimes we are incorrectly stereotyped as well. And that's a fun angle to really consider and talk about, too. 
This year actually marks the 75th anniversary of the Women's Armed Services Integration Act. So away went the WAC, and um, now we were just fully integrated into the um, you know military branches. And so as we're celebrating 50, 75 years of integration, it's unique to look back at all of the things that we have accomplished, you know, and I think that we get stuck, Dale, when we talk about what military women experience, I think we get stuck in so much of the negative and we get stuck in the discussions of the work that we still have to do um, when really just to take a little bit of a pause and celebrate some amazing things uh, is a really good outlook to have on it too. So that's what we try to focus on. I think so. And I wanted to uh, make sure that we get you to talk about your upcoming event in April of uh, this year. Yes, this is a huge success for us. So Women Veterans Strong is all about peer support. Um, we have three things we focus on. The first is um, getting rid of that stigma that's attached to mental wellness and seeking help for issues there. Um, the third is testimonials, being able to tell our stories. And the second is self-advocacy. And we want to advocate not only for ourselves, we want to be able to tell our stories, but we also want to advocate for other military women, the women on our left and our right. And so it starts with peer support of figuring out, well, what is the story of the military woman on my left and my right? Um, and then how can I serve her? How does she need my support in life? And so it really was through that vision um, that we became involved with an organization out in California. Um, and the event there is called Women Veterans Engage. And so just this past September, we hosted our first Women's Veteran Engage Detroit event. Uh, where we brought together uh, 86 women, military women from the state of Michigan and really all over because we had some remote attendees. Um, and we watched some national broadcast speakers. We took the pedal cars out downtown in Detroit. Oh, man, Detroit was taken by storm by military women that day. That was so much fun. Uh, and it was a chance for us to gather and to engage in some professional development with each other as peers. So we just did that in September, um, and then we are redoing it again in April. National went ahead and said that their 2023 dates are April 28 and 29. So that's what we have coming up in April. Uh, it's Women Veterans Engage Detroit. And we decided, much like you, Dale, that we can't just meet the standard. We have to exceed the standard. So we actually blew up that event to a full two-day leadership conference. So it is no longer just a peer type event for military women. It's a two-day leadership conference. Uh, we're calling it the Others Over Self 23 Leadership Conference and Women Veterans Engage Detroit. And it is hosted this year. It's being presented by General Motors. So we've really been lifted up by the community at large in the state of Michigan. Um, and it's so cool because... We have the opportunity as military women to take the stage on the leadership standpoint, and we're being given the microphone and the opportunity to present some incredible professional development modules that can only be told through our unique perspective. And so my presenters are male and female, and we also are leaning heavily into the support of military women during that weekend. So we are inviting everyone, if you consider yourself a business professional or somebody that really loves to just engage in professional development, um, to come out to our conference. And we have been so blessed by our sponsors that we are offering complimentary tickets for military women. So they don't even have to pay. That's how much we just want to love on them and bring them together and give them an opportunity to shine with each other. And where would they go to get those tickets? 
Um, that's a good question. I know I emailed you the link. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, it's tinyurl.com slash wve Detroit. tinyurl.com slash wve Detroit. Okay. Is there a phone number uh, that they could call if they're not that computer literate? Like they me? always can. <laughs> yes. We have a, our Woman Veteran Strong program has a hotline. Uh, and that number is 248-519-2325, 248-519-2325. Okay. And that website is womenveteranstrong.org. Yes. And you'll find contact information for everything on there, womenveteranstrong.org. I think that's great. I think that this is Terrific. I, I'm really excited about not only what, what you are doing, but where you are, um, you know, expanding out and offering all of these services, you know, not just to women veterans, but to veterans in general, which is, you know, so important. I think this, this generation is, we were talking earlier, you know, here we are on the day, what, you know, 20 years ago is when before, you know, the invasion of Iraq occurred. And, um, you know, these men and women are finally able to, you know, transition out if they want to. And, you know, we've got to be able to help them continue with their careers, continue with their lives and, and you know, let them, uh, you know, live out their dreams like people you know did for us. And I you think know, that's, Dale, that's you make such a good point. I feel like sometimes there's a huge brick wall that we put up between the military and civilian worlds. And that is not the case. I know that I have found in the state of Michigan open arms being welcoming me in from a corporate sector standpoint. So when I think about our veteran support network, I don't necessarily look to the, your traditional nonprofit VSOs, if you will. Um, I'm more reaching out to companies like General Motors. Um, and what's so cool about our April event is that we're hosting it at the Michigan Regional Carpool and uh, Council of Carpenters and Millwrights. So this is the Michigan Union for Carpentry and Millwrights at their skilled training center in Detroit. And so they actually have as one of their auxiliaries, um, the sisters in the brotherhood. So these are all of the women carpenters and millwrights that have their own gathering. And so how cool is it to see that civilian entity and the military entities coming together, lifting each other up? Um, like I said, they're just, for some reason, I think in our minds, there's a huge wall between military and civilian and it's so easy to just say well we are different and they don't get me and um, nobody understands what i've been through but the truth of the matter is is if we open our hearts and if we allow a little bit of transparency into our lives and into our experiences uh, you'll find that there's a lot of people that have been through what we have been through it might not look exactly the same um, that's the beauty of being an individual but a lot of people in our world have shared experiences. And the more that we can connect with each other, the better off we are long-term. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Thank you very much. Uh, Shelly Rood with her organization, Women's Veterans Strong. For more information, you can go to the website that she gave out, or you can go to our website, uh, veteransradio.net, and there's a link there that, that will take her to her stuff and everything that's coming up. And I look forward to hearing more about the event that's going to be happening at the end of April. And um, thank you very much for being on Veterans Radio. You're more, you're more than welcome to stay if you'd like to for the uh, remainder, because it seems like you guys, uh, women, excuse me. Um, you, <laughs> I have to remember this stuff. Um, I'm old. What can I say? Um, and um, to talk more about women in the military, kind of the history of it and so forth. Oh, I'm staying on. I'm not going to miss this discussion. Christine <laughs> Cook is coming up and she's a powerhouse. 
All right. Thank you very much. All right. As she just said, we are. We're going to be transitioning right into our next guest um, today, who is Colonel Christine Cook, United States Army retired, also PhD, and uh, another. And now she's a doctor, which is kind of cool. And I think I might have mentioned earlier on that uh, Christine was on our program first back in 2006 when we were mere children, and we <laughs> we were talking about her experiences uh, in Kuwait. And uh, her book was entitled Living on Tatooine, which is kind of a cool title, I thought, but an AKA Kuwait. Um, and uh, so I got to meet Christine. I got to meet her whole family, which was kind of great, too, because I had her husband on, Ken, to talk about being the, the parent left at home with two children. So um, right now, Christine is an assistant professor at the United States Army War College. Woohoo. And... Uh, but she's continuing right on. So, Christine, welcome back to Veterans Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, today, what we're going to be talking about, I should have had, you know, one of my other women members of our board on as the host, um, talking about the history of women in the military. And when I was thinking about this or researching it, I'm going, oh, I got to find a Medal of Honor recipient. You know, there's got to be a woman out there somewhere, and there's only one. And um, just briefly, I'm not going to do the whole thing with the music and everything else, but it's Dr. Mary Walker. And Dr. Mary Walker is the only female Medal of Honor recipient. Um, and it started out during the Civil War. Uh, she had went to medical school, graduated from Syracuse, which was kind of interesting, went into private practice. But then the Civil War broke out in 1861. She wanted to join the Army as a surgeon, but wasn't allowed. Surprise. Uh, because she was a woman. But because of her credentials, she didn't want to be a nurse either, so she chose to volunteer for the United, the Union Army. Mm-hmm. But she worked for free at a temporary hospital set up at the U.S. Patent Office in Washington, D.C. I have been in that building. It's really oh, beautiful. She also organized a women's relief organization to help the families of the wounded who came to visit at local hospitals. She moved to Virginia in 1862 this time to treat the wounded at field hospitals in 1863 her medical credentials were finally accepted so she moved to tennessee where she was appointed as a war department surgeon her position was paid and it was the equivalent of like a lieutenant said she was captured in 1864 by the south Hmm. who knew and held as a prisoner of war for about four months she and other union doctors were eventually exchanged in a prisoner of war exchange for Confederate medical officers. And according to the National Library of Medicine sources, uh, Walker had been captured intentionally so she could spy for the North, but there's no evidence of that. Not long after being released by the Confederates, she returned to uh, being a medical director at a hospital for women prisoners in Kentucky. Um, She was also an outspoken advocate for women's rights. Surprise. (laughs) <laughs> the war raged on. Feminists also struggled to further their, further their cause, which included being able to wear clothing that allowed them to move around better. She chose to wear what is known as a bloomer costume. thought that was interesting. It's a, it's a modified uniform throughout the war. It's a dress and trouser combination. She eventually switched to wearing men's clothes and was even arrested for impersonating a man. <laughs> This is crazy. In her defense, she argued that she was given special by permission, special permission by the government to dress that way. Um, 
In November of 1865, having left government service for good, she was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Andrew Johnson, even though she was a civilian who had never been commissioned as a military office. That civilian status was why her medal was rescinded in 1917, two years before she died. She refused to return the medal, though. Well, and I think they gave it back to her just recently. Yeah, they did. Spoiling my story here. Sorry. (laughs) 60 60 years after that, uh, President Jimmy Carter restored the honor in her name. And so we want to thank Dr. Mary Walker for representing all women in this long line of Honorable Medal of Honor recipients. I think that's a great story. And I can't imagine that kind of gives me my segue into talking with with, uh, Christine Cook here who is an expert on women in the military, as her dissertation pointed out to us. So, Christine, tell us about, I guess we can go back to World War II, Mm -hmm. actually when they first allowed women to even get near the military. Well, that's not exactly true because, of course, you know, in in Civil War and even in uh, the Revolutionary War, we always had women who were actually helping on the sidelines. They were often in the nurses' uh, positions. And as we can see, Dr. Mary Walker was also um, basically in the military, even if she didn't have rank. Um, we also had some people who dressed up as men. And when they died was when people sometimes found out that, ooh, that was a woman not a man. Um, so, I mean, that's, that happened throughout. Um, the women did try to, uh, become part of the military in the, um, world war one timeframe. And in fact, they had, um, yeomanettes and marinettes who were, um, part of the military, but not getting paid as a military person. Um, and of course, we had nurses and we had doctors in World War I. Um, so the Army Nurses Corps can actually um, date themselves back to World War I. But when we're talking about women in um, as a, you know, having rank um, and getting equal pay, um, that happened during World War II. So first, they started out as auxiliary corps. Um, so the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, or the WAAC, W-A-A-C, um, started in 1942. There were other um, sister services that had that. The Marines had a, a group that were auxiliary. Um, and the WAVES, which I can never remember what the what WAVES stands for, but part of it is volunteering for emergency service. So um, so those were women who were part of the auxiliary. In 1943, they decided that it was more important for women to be able to actually do a military job. And so they switched it so that it was an actual army position, Navy position, um, Marine position, or SPARS, the, the Coast Guard, um, through the end of the war. That was the plan. So in um, 1945, uh, when the war ended, the idea was... Um, the military women are going to go away. They're going to um, go home. They're going to get married. They're going to have 2.5 children um, uh, because that's what women should do um, because they were trying to kind of reestablish something that had never actually been legitimately the tradition, but the idea that women would stay at home and men would work. Um, so that was a, kind of this um, civilian idea, right? Um, but the Cold War was starting. And so um, people in the military 
realized fairly quickly on that they really wanted to keep women in the military. Um, and that's, as Shelley mentioned, um, when the Women's Army Armed Services Integration Act came into effect. Um, they started building it in 1946. Um, it got passed by the Senate in 1947 um, and then uh, got bogged down in the House of Representatives for a little while, um, it, but it eventually became a law in 1948. Now, the concept of it being integration, I would use air quotes around, um, because by and large, while women were now a permanent part of the structure, they were not integrated into the military. They were, they tended to work in parallel or separate. Um, they had training that was separate. They had facilities that were separate. Um, after 1959, they weren't allowed to, uh, be on the rifle team, um, as an example. Um, and, and so the idea of integration was, uh, a long time in coming. I'll bet it sounds like it. That's for sure. We, um, I have to pull up this, this chat that we got. That said, whoops, just got myself cut off. Oh, there we go. Yep. Ah. Accepted for voluntary emergency service. Yep. There we go. Yep. So, um, my question to, to you is that with the integration of the, of everybody into their service under Truman, I guess is, is where this all occurred, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. And you, you were mentioning that, um, that after the, the war that, that the women were supposed to go home and, you know, be the traditional um, moms, mothers, and so forth that, that many of us grew up with in the 50s and so forth. But you also said that there were, were certain restrictions for the women that were in the military. Could you go into that a little bit? We're talking with sure. Christine Cook, who is the, the uh, our, our expert on uh, women <laughs> in the military. Right. So first of all, um, they were not allowed to be more than 2% of the total strength of the military at any given time. Um, so if we had 100,000 people in the military, that means I'm not very good at math, but let's say 2,000 uh, 2, would be allowed to be in the military. Right. Um, and so uh, that was the cap for for Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Um, in addition, they also had a rank cap for up until 1967, where um, women were only allowed up to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel um, and only one at a time in each branch of service was allowed to be a colonel, and that would be the director of the Women's Air Force, the the Navy, or the, the WAC. Um, and they were, they thought, for a while about the idea of basically just giving a, a discharge upon marriage um, if women decided to get married. Um, but then they decided, no, we'll lose too many people that way. So what we'll do is we'll voluntarily allow them to discharge um, if they wish to be discharged. Um, that being said, up until 1974 or 75, you basically could not have a child. Um, so the minute you got pregnant, you would be summarily discharged. Um, you know, an honorable discharge, but it was still a discharge. Um, you were not allowed to be a mother. You were not allowed to have dependents. And so even though the idea was that it was equal pay for equal rank, that was true to a point, uh, but they were not allowed in any combat positions. Therefore, there was no combat pay. There was no hazardous duty pay. Women did not get it. Plus, they didn't have um, housing. 
ability uh, because they weren't allowed to have dependents. Therefore, um, they should be able to live in, you know, the the um, enlisted quarters or in the in, in an officer's quarters. Um, and so if they married a man uh, who was in the military, then they could live in the house of his rank, not her rank. So even though she might have been a lieutenant colonel and he was a sergeant, um, they would be in sergeant's quarters because she didn't count. Um, and she could not declaim, she could not claim dependence except in one instance. And that is if she could prove that the person she had married could not have a job, then she could claim him as a dependent. Um, and I think that the idea was if a woman decided to marry somebody who was a um, disabled veteran, that she could then claim that person as a dependent. I think that that was the, the real point. Um, okay. But they didn't want that to happen. So by and large, it was basic, basically um, you are not allowed to have a dependent. So those were just a couple of the things that they wrote right into the Women's Armed Services Integration Act. And it remained statute until 1978. Wow. I was just thinking when you're saying about the, um, I never even contemplated this because I never lived on a military base. I mean, other than when I was in flight school and, <laughs> you know, going through basic training and a lot of other stuff. But once we got, I got married, we got to move off and they never invited us live on live on uh, Fort Rock <laughs> but so the housing is based on rank as well so I mean what's like a like a sergeant starts off in a two-bedroom cement brick house and then you kind if of move lucky. up yeah if he's or, or an apartment yeah okay I did not know that yeah. see listen to veterans radio learn all these different great facts and so forth as we go go along right. um so you mentioned that you know many of these things started training I know that women were not allowed in flight schools um, and as you've said, they were not allowed it in, co in combat at all. Mm -hmm. And when did that start to change? Okay, well, um, believe it or not, Vietnam did change a couple of things. So one of the things that ended up happening is eventually women were allowed to volunteer to go to Vietnam. Um, they didn't get hazardous duty pay uh, because the idea was they were not going to be in a hazardous duty position. They were going to be in Saigon, they were going to be in, you know, fill in the fill in the blank. They eventually got to 100% strength in January of 1968. Now, if anything, and anybody knows anything about Vietnam, they might realize they got at full strength right around Tet. So guess what got attacked when they were on the ground? Their yes. base because it was a huge logistics space. And so lots of mortars went into um, the area where they were, but they weren't getting hazardous duty pay, even though they were dump, jumping behind bunkers. And of course, remember, they weren't allowed to wear use weapons either. So there they are in Vietnam, weaponless, trying not, to- And not getting paid. And not getting that, that whopping $65 a month. Exactly. Hazardous duty pay. <laughs> And so one of the that. things uh, also was that President Johnson actually had an assistant who was a reservist, um, and uh, she was like one of his executive assistants, right? He wanted her to be a colonel 
a full kernel. And they said, nope, there are no such things except for the director of the, of the uh, branch. And he said, baloney. Thank you. We should have more than that. So the, in 1967, they decided, number one, that there would be no rank limit, and number two, that there would be more than just one colonel. Um, and so the director actually became a brigadier general at that point in time. And then in, 19, in the early 1970s, as they were trying to get rid of the uh, all volunteer, or I'm sorry, the, the selective service, they switched to the all-volunteer force. They figured that all of the men would sit there and say, not interested in joining the middle military. Thank you very much. Um, I'm off. Um, not gonna, not going to, um, uh, volunteer in any way, shape or form. So they figured, well, it seems like women are interested in this. So let's improve recruitment to try to get more women in. And when they did that, then they also realized that they also had to change certain things like there's, probably shouldn't be a voluntary discharge for women who get married, as an example. Um, if they get pregnant, they should not be thrown out. They should be allowed to have more than one dependent. All of the rules should be the same for men and women when it came to dependency. Now, granted, it's a little hard to prove when you have a father, right? Um, but you know, all of these dependency rules should be the same. So now we've got a situation where um, they're allowed to, what they decided was women should be allowed to have as many kids as they want, um, but you're only allowed to claim three dependents, one spouse, two kids. That was all that you were allowed to do. You could have eight, sure, go for it, but you're only paid for three, right? Um, and, and that's for both men and women. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, if you're in the military and you want to claim dependence, maximum three. Um, and they, they also, be, by doing that, also uh, made it that if you're a colonel in the military, like me, when I went on, on duty um, at the war college while I was still in the military, I got colonel's quarters. I did not get, you know, I, I was able to live on post because I was a woman claiming three dependents. So, um and let's see. So the other thing is that they decided as as um, this was happening and more and more training was co-educational, um, they started getting rid of the training for the WACs. Um, and that was basically by the mid-1970s, the only thing that the WAC was for was for training. Um, and so they decided that um, with what with one thing and another, they would get rid of the statute for the Women's Armed Services Integration Act, fully integrate into the military. Um, and that happened about 1978. Oh, this is really interesting. We are talking here with uh, retired Colonel Christine Cook, also now a doctor, also in women's uh, women in the military, extraordinaire expert of ours. And um, I guess my, my question was, when in the mid seventies, I guess it was, I, I remember was seeing a TV program where I think who was that? Patty Duke. Patty Duke evidently ended up going through flight school. <laughs> and that was the first time I, that was the first time I had seen it. And I have to say my my group of you know of people were going, What? You can't do that. And so forth. And I'm, I'm sure that it had to be really difficult to get the 
you know, get women into some of these, quote, combat situations. But I guess they figured that if she's in the air, she's not in, you know, on the ground and so forth. There's actually the the flying is an interesting point, because, first of all, one of the things ha- that happened in the 1970s as they got rid of the whack um, is that they f- realized that they had to officially put together a policy for the combat exclusion policy. So it was around 1977, 1978 that they came up with this idea that women could not be um, on the front line. Um, and so uh, basically that precluded them from being in the infantry, the armor, field artillery, engineers, um, I always forget one. Um, but anyway, one of them one was combat flying. They were not allowed to combat fly. They were, however, allowed to do flights that were uh, logistics um, and also some medical, depending. So the women who were learning how to fly were basically learning how to fly the logistics or the, the medical flights. And it was not until the 1990s um, that they decided that um, I think because of uh, perhaps because of Desert Storm um, that they realized there's no such thing as keeping people who are flying away from possible combat. Um, and so so that's when um, they they decided that combat flight was also a, um, possible. And that's the first one that basically became um, a combat duty that women could actually do. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking when you're talking about logistics, that means taking supplies out into the field and dropping them off. And that was sometimes the most dangerous thing that we exactly. ever did. Exactly. Um, so it was kind of artificial. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and with and with Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, it basically they every everybody realized that you know the the biggest threat is anybody who's on the roads. That meant anyone. Right, because of the IEDs and things like that. Um, so the idea of combat was was really blurring, and plenty of women were in combat positions, um, even though they weren't combat positions on paper. Uh, and that's when things really um, had to change. They realized that they had to change. So 2015 was when they finally decided they were going to open it up to any woman who was physically able to do those particular positions. And I think that's the important uh, words that you just used there was that they're physically able to do the work. It's like, you know, Mm -hmm. that there are, you know, there are women firefighters and there are women, you know, police officers and stuff, as long as they can do, do the job physically, that, that, and that, that makes, you know, that makes sense. Well, and let's be clear, there are plenty of men who can't quite do infantry work either. Uh, Yes, I know a few of those. (laughs) Um, um, the other the other truth is that for every one position that is a combat position, there are nine people supporting them. And so, you know, the truth is that 90 percent of the population of the military could be, you know, not in a combat position and still um, helping to to support the military in some way or another. So what what is the um, what are the what's the case today? What's going on today? Everybody's allowed um, to do whatever they want. Okay, well, can. you know, yes and no, right? Okay. <laughs> so okay. One of the things that happened with in 2015 was that they also attempted to introduce a new PT test, um, physical training test, and the idea behind the physical training test was that um, you would get a certain percentage, and if you if you were in, you know, let's say 
um, my my field, which was personnel, you don't have to be, you know, as as physically qualified. So you get to, you know, score 70 percent on this this test. Right. Um, and on up to if you're infantry, you better be getting a 100 percent on this test. Right. Um, the truth is a lot of men have trouble passing the, this particular test. But there is one um, event in particular that most women cannot do. And it is a weird hold like this. Um, and then you do. She's got. A, yeah, we're a on a radio, so, so she right. got so, her hands so up in the air. You're holding. You, you like, like on a on a um, pull up bar, right? You're holding like this, and you you have to lift your legs up to to your chest. All right. Women have significant difficulties holding this position for that long. A lot of men do too, actually. Um, but because of that, a lot of women are failing that the test, and they're probably going to have to go back to square one on that test. Um, but either way, they have situations where it's like, you know, if you are qualifying for ranger school, then you can go to ranger school. Um, and we we have actually for the first time um, as of about a year ago, right, 2021, um, her, her promotion was held up um, because of um, – the president before, I think. Uh, but either way, um, we have a four-star general in the army, um, and she is a combatant commander um, for Southcom. So that is the first woman who has been in one of those positions ever. Um, so, you know, the world can be the oyster, but, you know, there are still issues. Um, and there was a big backlash Um in 2016, 2017, and I think you can still sometimes see it, especially in the Marine Corps, where the Marine Corps basically said, not interested in having women in combat positions. And, you know, we've been forcing them, but they're, they're still, they're making it very unpleasant for the women who even try. All right. So when you look at our percentage in, in the military at this point, the highest percentage has always been the Air Force. They're at roughly 19 percent, um, hovering almost close to 20, um, followed by the Army, which is at about 18 percent. I believe that the Navy is around 17 percent and um, the Marines are at 9 percent. That makes sense, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I would suppose. I said over your over your time in the in the uh, in the army, uh, Christine. We're talking, as I said, you were talking with Christine Cook, a retired colonel. Um, how did it change for you? Because you you went you went through ROTC, didn't you? I did go through ROTC, um, and in fact, ROTC started. Um, that was the first thing that basically chipped away at the whack um, because they started allowing women into the ROTC starting in 1972. Um, and so um, I got a full-blown scholarship in 1982 for four years at a um, pretty good um, university um, and uh, basically commissioned. But at the time, I was not allowed to be in a combat um Position, not that I really wanted one. Actually, you know, um, wanted to go military intelligence, uh, but uh, it was like six months to get the top secret clearance, and um, I was National Guard, three hours away from where I lived. What with one thing and another, I finally decided I needed to find something closer to home, and that happened to be a personnel position. So I ended up being personnel for the majority of my career. Um, 
the PT test was one of those things where it started out being honestly a little too easy for women. Um, and as Title IX went into effect and more and more women got um, equal pay for their uh, you know, college and high school sports, women were getting better at the PT tests. And so over my entire time frame, the PT test standards got higher and higher and higher so that um, you know, they changed it with age. Um, but by the time I retired, I was still doing the same PT test I had had to do as a, an 18-year-old. Um, so it was, you know, there was improvements over time with that, um, that women were becoming more and more, were getting stronger and stronger and less likely to be the weaker sex, so to speak. Um, of course, I did, I did deploy. Um, I was in the, you know, the an area that was not expected to see combat. But then again, I did fly in at least a couple of times to places that were technically under combat conditions um, while I was there. Uh, and there was nothing that was stopping me, you know, and, and that was, as I said, about the time when people started realizing there is no such thing as a front line and we're not going to be protecting women. So, um, so by the time I was finished in 2016, you know, 2015 was when um, they announced that there would be no more combat exclusion policy um, right about the time when I was leaving. So. And, and how many women are in the, in the, in the general rank nowadays? Cause I know well, that's, that's one of the reasons why you left. Cause you know, this is so no, 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 I, I left because I hit my mandatory retirement. Oh, well, you hit that, <laughs> that 30 so. years thing. Yeah, I was in for 30 years and they were telling me I had to leave. Um, but uh, so I don't actually have the exact number, um, but it was always kind of lagging when I was there that, um, you know, when when you say that there's, you know, when I was in, it was about 15 percent of the, the women in the military, um, but about three percent in the general officer corps. 3% in the Colonel Corps, you know. Um, and so I was one of 3% as a Colonel and, you know, even less people. And uh, you've got a situation where there's um, approximately 300 active duty generals and maybe yeah. 10 or 15 of them are women. Yeah, makes sense. Um, um, I, I want to I bring Shelly back into the conversation because she's been listening attentively as we've, we've been giving a history of women because you were, you, were, you were in intelligence. I was. I don't know what that says about me, but I was. <laughs> but you were able to get into that MOS, correct? Yes. Yep. Yep. And I was a distinguished military graduate from Western Michigan, so I was able to choose my branch. and. Oh. I grew up in the 90s looking at um, like April O'Neil and Dana Scully on television. Um, those are pop culture references of women who are in uh, journalism and the intelligence world. Um, and so I genuinely like I thought I was going to grow up and be a secret spy or an FBI agent. Um, so when I was given the opportunity and they said, what branch do you want to choose? I was Intel all the way. I mean, I was so thankful for the opportunity to be um, behind the scenes, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so where did you receive that training? Um, the United States Army Intelligence School is mostly based out of Fort Huachuca, Arizona. Okay. 
Did you ever get the, I mean, obviously you use it, but you can't tell us, otherwise you have to kill us. Okay. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we don't want that. Well, um, and ironically, by the time I got to be a colonel, I was actually put into an intel slot. But I couldn't train there because they only train up through major. So I, I was doing it kind of on-the-job training. <laughs> well, uh, my, my question is, is, is to the effect of, you know, how you felt about your experiences in the military themselves and where you think it's going. And Shelly, I'm going to ask you too. We're back talking with Shelly Rood here, um, uh, who's a captain, was a captain in the army when she got out. So what do you think, where do you think it's going? That is a good question. You know, I can celebrate from the perspective where I saw a lot of integration and even though I was often the only female in the room as a military woman, um, I mean, all of my analysts over the years were males. I think I only ever had two females that I ever was in charge of or, you know, had to kind of handle in any way. Um, they've always been males. And even from a command standpoint, um, I was under one one-star general that was a female. And I did have one colonel who was a female. But other than that, it was males across the board. Um, but I can honestly say that even though I was the only female in the room, a lot of the times, I never felt like I was alone because I knew that there were women in those positions, you know, and that's a lot thanks to the leadership from Christine and a lot of women that were five, 10, 15 years ahead of me. So they did that hard work and climbed those ranks and got into those positions. And so I had the beautiful opportunity to just see that as, well, yeah, that's how it is. And so I didn't experience um, a lot of that stereotyping, whereas I know a lot, a lot of military women have. And that's why I enjoy hearing their stories, because for me, it was um, not a major part of my military career. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's good to know that they're evolving mm -hmm. you know, and kind of, you know, catching up or with the rest of the, of, uh, of our, um, civilization or our country as far as you know the equality wars are going because when you think about what was you know what happened when truman you know integrated the military that caused a, a big turmoil mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and um but it, it happened it, six weeks after the the women's armed services integration act yeah but I mean, it, it set the tone. I mean, it, it really did. It set the tone for the 50s and 60s from a historical perspective. Mm -hmm. Hey, finally. Okay. And that's well, not I, to say I, that there wasn't, there's not issues that we face. There are issues that we face. You know, you still separate males and females when we go out to the field. I mean, I'm army. You don't set your tent up right next to the males. And so there's, uh, I was just talking with a retired colonel friend and she was the fighter pilot and she's the only female. And so they would go off for training and the males would be in uh, one area and she would be clear on like a hotel off the base because that was the only lodging for a female that they mm -hmm. could have. So you want to talk about like, it sounds great to have everybody integrated. And yet we do have life experience that shows us well, how am I supposed to be growing my team when I'm on the other side of the base? Whereas they're all getting together, you know, for those 2 a.m. runs down to the kitchen or whatever. She's never had the opportunity to be a part of that camaraderie. 
So, yeah, yeah, you know, there's challenges that we're always going to face when you talk about the integration of the genders. Um, But I just am an advocate for where things are going because I do see a lot of hope, a lot of promise. Um, And at the same time, I think that we need to not forget that the genders are different. As Christine pointed out, we are physically different um, and our brains are even wired a little bit different as well. Uh, And so there are things that we are going to excel at more. And there are also things that the men will accelerate more. And that doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It means, as my husband and I always say, equal but different. (laughs) Equal but different. Yeah. Well, and and actually, uh, you know, talking about living on Tatooine, um, Dale might remember that I ended up talking about the fact that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And we had a situation where I was the only officer um, and there were a total of three women in my uh, unit. And we actually had a situation where um, they I originally set up my point so that, you know, I was in one hooch and in the same tent um, down the down the hall was. Uh, my two officers that who who were male, um, and I really liked that because I felt a lot more uh, honestly safer um, had, knowing that I had two guys who weren't going to do anything dumb with me because I outranked them, right? Um, and so then you know a new guy came on that that was running that base. He said we can't have males and females in the same tent together. He pulled my two guys. And after two days of watching, you know, 6,000 men who um, I didn't know coming on and going into Iraq, um, I walked in and I said, you're going to give me my two majors back uh, because I do not feel comfortable being mm. alone on this base. Um, and luckily, I I um, I also outranked him. So <laughs> I was able to get my way. <laughs> And praise the Lord for that, because there's so many women who find themselves falling under that military or government regulation where we don't have the rank. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're right. The the stupid decisions right, or the wrong decisions uh, are being made sometimes without an understanding of our perspective. And that's why you have to listen to the perspective of the people involved. Right. Exactly. Exactly. OK, well, we've got about three minutes to go. So I'm going to ask for a final statement of women in the military from uh, Christine. What have you got? What do you, well, what do you see I this mean, going? Um, I think that, you know, um, as as Shelley was saying, one of the things that we are seeing is more and more the things that are in the non-combat areas, the places where women have been for 75 years, um, men and women are working side by side together and they really almost don't even blink. It does not matter. Um, and they are are very comfortable with each other, and they they form a siblings in arms, uh, uh, you know, rather than a brothers in arms, right? Um, there are still some issues um, with trying to go into the um, combat arms. There are plenty of men who do not want um, women to be there, and so it's probably going to take almost another twenty or thirty years before people start feeling comfortable about that too. Okay. Shelly, I'll give you the last word. I got about a minute left. Well, if you're a woman and you're going to serve in the military, it's going to be hard. And if you can accept that and know that every footstep forward, you're going to face challenges, both seen and unforeseen, then you're going to be just fine. 
But if you think you're going to walk in <laughs> to the military and uh, things are going to be handed to you on a silver platter, you are absolutely wrong. So if you're willing to step up, if you're willing to do the hard work, then welcome. And we would love to have you and your nation needs you. And one last time, could you tell a uh, remind our audience of your conference coming up in April? April 28 and 29. And we are at the um, you can go to tinyurl.com slash WVE dash Detroit. This is a two day leadership conference and women veterans engage event. OK, thank you very much. Thank you both. Thank you, Shelley Rude. Christine you. Cook, we greatly appreciate you being on Veterans Radio today. We are, will be back next week with our benefits program. So if you have any questions about that, we're going to be talking especially about women veterans and how they're getting along with the VA system that's out there because we know it's another issue that's been you know, going on. And uh, we thank you all for tuning in and listening to Veterans Radio. This program will be up on our website later on this evening. I want to thank everybody. I thank our guests, thank our sponsors. And until next week, this is Dale Thronberry for Veterans Radio, and you are dismissed.